Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Dae Kim, and until next Sunday, I'm the pastoral resident here at Cornerstone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you are going to write in a staff appreciation card, start with mine, because you only have seven days to do it. <laughs> if you have your Bibles with you, please open with me to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 16 to 19. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, it'll be up there on the screen for you. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16 to 19. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, would you show us Christ? Lord, there is no more important request that we can make from you but to show us your son, the way, the truth, and the life through whom there's life eternal and all things that we can bank on for security and hope. Father, through this passage, may you be glorified for you deserve nothing less than all of our uh, strength, all of our mind, all of our soul. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. For 86 years, I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? In the first century, there was a, when the church was still very young, there was an old pastor named Polycarp. And Polycarp just happened to be one of the few remaining students of the Apostle John. And he lived in the city of Smyrna. And the city of Smyrna was under heavy persecution both by the state and by the religious authorities. And eventually the authorities were sent to arrest Polycarp and bring him to charges for being a Christian. Once the soldiers arrived, they received a welcome they did not expect. Instead of Escaping the city, Polycarp refused to listen to the advice of his students and instead waited for the soldiers in a small farm just outside of town. And when the soldiers arrive, Polycarp comes out and he greets them like he like he's, hasn't seen his old friends in many years. He brings them food and he brings them water. But the only thing he asks in return is not his freedom, but rather just one hour to go back in the, inside the home and pray. The soldiers wait outside for an hour, and they see no harm in giving him another hour. So two hours pass by, and eventually they are reminded of their mission and goal, which is to bring Polycarp back to the emperor for his sentence. So they do that. After two hours, they bring him out, and they put him in a chariot, and they drive him all the way to the Colosseum, the stadium, where he's, Polycarp now is standing in front of an audience, waiting for his blood to be to be spilled, and he's standing in front of the governor of Smyrna, waiting for his sentence to be pronounced. The governor first 
threatens him with the sword. He says, I'm going to put you to the sword, down on the sword, and does, does not face the old pastor. Later, he threatens him with wild beasts. And still, his faith is unshaken. Eventually, the governor asks this old pastor, what is keeping you? What is keeping you from renouncing the name of Christ? What is keeping you from avoiding this form of great suffering? What is keeping you from still holding on to your faith? To which, this, to which Polycarp responds, For 86 years, I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? This great story of faith in the midst of trials, suffering, and even death begs the question, how can a man, at the threat of pain, ridicule, and death, still be filled with joy of all that Jesus did for him? See, what is the secret to remain joyful when there's nothing joyful to be about? When there's suffering in your life, or when there's nothing good seems to be guaranteed to happen? As we continue our Advent series titled, Light in the Darkness, I'm excited, actually very excited to meditate through this passage with you this morning because no other book in the Bible has had a greater impact in my understanding of the gospel than the book of Habakkuk. Simply put, Habakkuk is my favorite book. And if you're wondering, day people in ministry should not uh, have play favoritism and have a favorite book in the Bible, all of the books of the Bible should be your favorite. Let me remind you, I'm not ordained yet. So until (laughs) ordination, this is my favorite book and I stand by it. But in all seriousness, this is a beautiful book, a wonderful book that walks us through a very, very relatable life issue that we all deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is, making sense of suffering in the world and in our lives and the goodness of God. So I want to spend uh, our time looking at this one gospel point. The gospel gives us hope to rejoice in our sufferings. The gospel gives us hope to rejoice in our sufferings. And this could be past, present, or future. The gospel gives us hope to rejoice in our sufferings. And I want to consider with you three things we learn from this passage. First, the reality of suffering. Suffering is real. Secondly, the untouchable joy in suffering and what that looks like. And thirdly, the lenses to see better in our suffering. So the reality of suffering, the untouchable joy in our suffering, and the lenses to see better in our suffering. So first, the reality of suffering. In verse 17, The prophet is describing a situation where everything that could go wrong has and will go wrong. I mean, this was code red. This was Houston, we have a problem situation. And Habakkuk was a prophet during the 7th century and lived during a time when the people of God were immersed and living in sin and God didn't seem to care or even be present in their surroundings. He seemed to be out of the picture. So for two chapters, if you go back to chapter 1 and 2, Habakkuk is deeply involved in a conversation exchange with God, asking this very question. God, why is there evil and suffering in my life and in the world? And secondly, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Where are you? 
instead of getting an answer, a straight answer, God tells the prophet that actually more suffering is on its way through the Babylonians, which was a pagan nation at the time. And when the Babylonians come, they will bring destruction, they will be, bring more suffering and conquer the nation and bring a demise, ending life as they once knew. And by verse 17, the prophet learns a very, very valuable life lesson, which is this. Suffering in life is unavoidable and it's real. Look at verse 17 with me. It's worth noting that he begins verse 17 with the word though. It's just one word, but it tells us a major life lesson, though. In this one word, we learn that Habakkuk's understanding of the world is one where things are broken. It's an acceptance that suffering will not just come theoretically or conditionally, but it will come in due time, if not through the Babylonian conquest, through another means. In wedding vows, when, you, when someone gets married, spouses vow to love each other in sickness and in health. In other words, this promise is, though you grow old, and though there will be a point when you're living more in sickness than in health, I will love you and be with you. In this, even in wedding vows, there's this acceptance that sickness and death is inevitable because that's what life is made of. We live in a broken world. And the Christian answer as to why suffering and, suffering and evil exist is that sin entered the world and disrupted God's original design for mankind. But you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to believe in sin. To believe and to realize that nobody is exempt from suffering in the world. You don't have to be a Christian or you don't have to believe in God or you don't have to believe in the brokenness of the world to, be, to believe that the world is broken and at times it can be very, very dark. See, we, li we live in a world where people die young and even with all the technological and medical advancements, there are thousands of people dying in all parts of the world still. There was once a man who received a call from his doctor, and the doctor said to him, I have good news and bad news. And the man said, give me the good news first. And the doctor said, the good news is that based on your latest medical examinations, you have 24 hours to live. And the man, shocked, said, replied, if that's the good news, then what's the bad news? And the doctor said, we couldn't reach you yesterday. Maybe for some of you, you got a very similar phone call this past year. For others, at some point in your life, things will take a turn for the worse, and the likelihood is that no one will prepare you for it until things are already too late. See, it's December already, and ironically, what is supposed to be and often associated as the happiest month of the year, for some people, it's actually the most painful season of all. Perhaps because pain or suffering reached out its hand earlier this year and touched you or a loved one or someone you know. So the celebrations may feel emptier with an open chair when one less serving of food to make. See, everything the prophet is describing here can be adjusted just a little bit to reflect our own lives. 
And as we approach the end of 2018 and bring in the new year, I would venture to guess that this past year, 2018, was not pain-free for all of you, for any of us. And I hope that this past year, and I really do hope this past year, was full of joyful moments, things to celebrate in life. But I also have to recognize, I think we all have to recognize that for all of us, this past year had had its toughest moments. See, for all, if not most of you, you've experienced the brokenness of life, whether through disappointment, laying in bed in your marriages, your relationship with your children is not as good as you hoped it would be, financial instability, job disappointment. Church, you have a glimpse of what it's like to have the fig tree not blossom. You have a glimpse of what it's like to have the olive produce fail, the flock be cut off from the fold, and the stalls to be empty. And maybe as you're listening to this, perhaps you're thinking, of course the preacher wants me to think about the sad things in life. He's trying to sell me God, and everything will be better if you have God. I haven't been to church in a long time, and I was hoping to hear a very cheerful message, and he's being kind of a Debbie Downer here. Maybe you're thinking, why can't we just stay positive? Stay positive. Push away all those negative thoughts and indulge in the good. Well, there are two problems with that. First, the belief that good things will happen to good people or even God-believing people is naive. That's not how life works. The greatest example of that was Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, pleasing to God in every single way, and yet suffering followed him, and suffering and death followed him all the way to the cross. But secondly, the idea that we have to stay positive, which is something very common in our modern society today, just stay positive, good thoughts, good thoughts. The idea that we have to stay positive about life and avoid thinking about evil, suffering, and death is to live in denial and out of touch with reality. Blaise Pascal, who some of you may know as the great mathematician during the 17th century, he kept a journal of his meditations, and the journal is called Pensee. And in one of his entries, he explores this idea of the inescapability of death and suffering in a person's life. And his conclusion is that because every person knows at the back of their mind that suffering is inevitable, and somewhere around the corner, our defense mechanism is to live in distractions. He has this fascinating line, which I quote, The only thing which consoles us from our miseries is diversion. And yet, this is the greatest of our miseries. Diversion amuses us and leads us unconsciously to death. See, Pascal is saying this. If you live a life by distracting yourself and removing your thoughts from the inescapable reality of suffering and death, then when tragedy does strike you, when the storms of life do overtake you, you'll be lost and ill-equipped to face reality. Just like every king needs a jester, we all have distractions in our lives that we may run to or escape, or we run to in hopes to escape from reality. For some, the distractions may be sports. For others, maybe your distraction is Netflix. 
Maybe for others, your distraction is your career. You're focused on your career, and you're young, and, you're, and you just started out, so you need to, you can make it, and you, don't for, and you forget about what life is made of. See, if we choose to ignore the fact that we live in a broken world by distracting ourselves, we're living out of touch with reality, and that is what Pascal calls tragedy. We could call it delusion. So as we look to the holidays and the new year, let me ask you this question. How is your attitude towards the new year? Is it optimistic? Are you really, 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 really wishing and hoping to avoid sufferings in 2019 and for it to be better? Or does Pascal's quote describe you in that you haven't even given it a thought about the sufferings that may be on its way? Church, are we listening to what scripture is teaching that we live in a broken world and we need a different tactic that is not distractions or naive hope? And the question becomes, how do we deal with brokenness in this world and in our lives? What is the answer to take joy in the midst of living in a broken world? Which leads us to our second point. God teaches Habakkuk the secret to untouchable joy in sufferings. Because you see, the answer to joy is really no secret at all. Habakkuk's attitude on the sufferings that are to come takes a beautiful turn in verse 18. When he says, yet I. There's a shift happening here in his heart as he places his hope from circumstances around him that are changeable to placing his hope and trust in the Lord. See, the unchangeable and this shift is what makes the ultimate difference for him. And it can for us. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist during World War II in Vienna who was arrested and along with his whole family sent to a concentration camp. And while he was in the camp, Viktor figured that he needs a purpose to be in the camp. So he vowed, he resolved to become the camp's therapist and try to give hope to people who are suffering in the camp. Eventually, Viktor survived the camp and he, in his freedom, he wrote this book, called Man's Search for Meaning. And in this book, he writes a very insightful reflection. That, and, and it is this, that out of all the people whom he encountered in the camp, people who placed their hopes on something that was untouched by the camp were far more resilient to suffering and far more hopeful than those whose hopes were crushed by the camp. He mentions this particular story of a man whose young child was actually safe and sound in another foreign country during the camp during World War II. And this man's hope was resilient. His joy was unshaking. And Victor concludes it's because the camp was not able to reach this boy. The hands of the camp, the soldiers were not able to reach him. The wires were not able to scratch him. See, Victor's observation is just a small shadow of the greater lesson we learned from Habakkuk. See, if we place our hopes in, thing, in the things of this world, eventually they will be prey to decay. But hope in God is untouchable and produces unshakable joy despite any circumstance of life. 
But I think we have to pause here and ask the question. That's all nice and all, but how, how is it that Habakkuk learns to place his trust in the Lord? How is it that he's able to continue living in this broken world with hope? We find the answer to that question in verse 18 and 19 when it reads, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. See, don't miss this. Habakkuk's emphasis here is on God's presence when he says, God of my salvation and God of my strength. Because earlier in the book of Habakkuk, during this conversation, Habakkuk takes time to remember how God led the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and finally it clicks for him. The theoretical became practical. See, Habakkuk is reminded of God's providence, and he's reminded of God's power. And the greatest fact of all is that God is always with his people. See, God is not just at a distance watching, but rather he's in control, and he's fully present and preserving Habakkuk's soul through the harshest storms of life. See, Habakkuk learns that God is his strength and salvation because God is with him. In other words, God's presence is strength. God's presence is salvation. Church, we have a God who knows that people walking in suffering need a person more than a principle or a lesson. I mean, have you ever as a kid been afraid to go, to go in somewhere dark? And what would help more if your father or your mother gave you a flashlight and said, go get them? Or if they took hold of your hand and they walked into the darkness with you, wouldn't you feel a greater sense of courage that a flashlight cannot give you? Unless they themselves are afraid too, I suppose. But God is not afraid. See, church, our joy is never quenched. It's untouchable and unshakable when our hopes are placed in God, mainly because God is with you. He's willing to walk with you through your darkness. And we, and we know this to be true because we see this great promise fulfilled through Jesus Christ, the light of the world, who was willing to pierce through our darkness so that the suffering you may experience in this world, not only does he understand, but he walks with us today through the darkest of times. And as Habakkuk so rightly puts it, God leads us to walk in high places. Why? Because Jesus was exalted and he was lifted up and he's at the right hand of God the Father. And by faith, we're united to him who is lifted up and our hopes are placed with him in glory. And where the rust of this world cannot touch our joy. The brokenness of this world is not long enough to reach the throne room of God. And so it is that we're able to cry out in joy to the God of my salvation and the God of my strength only because Jesus cried out in sorrow, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, he experiences the ultimate despair on the cross so that we can experience the ultimate love and affair with the Father. 
See, at the cross, Jesus enters into the darkness we should have entered so you and I can walk into light. How does, uh, how does a ship stay grounded in the sea? Even when the waves toss to and fro. And the answer is, when the ship lets down its anchor, the waves may crash against it, but as long as the ship is tied to that anchor, it, the ship becomes unmovable and, un, and not overturned. Likewise, when our hopes are in Christ, come what may, our joy is in the Lord. See, what's so powerful about Scripture is that Habakkuk is not minimizing the gravity of his circumstances, nor is he downplaying nor sanitizing pain or suffering. He doesn't, he doesn't give himself a pep talk, pep talk to muster any energy here or courage, but instead, instead of minimizing his situation, he's actually maximizing God's power and security. In simple words, the Babylonian invasion and famine is a great big deal. But to Habakkuk, God is far greater still. So the question for us to consider this morning is the same. In the midst of living in a broken world, will you choose to rejoice in the Lord or your circumstances? See, when that promotion at work passes you by and someone else is considered for it, will you choose to say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord? When you get that unexpected diagnosis from the doctor and they call you into their office and they tell you, we don't know what this is. You're going to have to do more tests. Will your heart choose to say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord? When you and your family received a college rejection letter, and you've worked all year so hard to get into that perfect school, will your heart choose to say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord? When you're on the internet looking for a marriage counselor because your marriage is suffering and it's been falling apart for, the whole, for many years now, can your heart still choose to say in that very moment, yet I will rejoice in the Lord? When your finances are not working out, and you're living from paycheck to paycheck, and the luxuries of life are so foreign to you, can your heart still choose to say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord? When your relationship with your children or your relationship with your parents is filled with strife and scars for many years, can you still choose to say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord? When you've witnessed the burial of a close loved one, And when death has robbed you of future festivities with that person, will your heart choose to say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord? Church, learn to place your hope in the Lord. For only hope in Him can bring joy that is untouchable by the brokenness and darkness of this world. But lastly, how do we do this? How do we do this? This leads me to our last point. In our Christian lives, faith sees better than sight. Faith sees better than sight. We need lenses to see better in our suffering. Look at verse 16 with me. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. 
in our Christian lives, there are times when, help, when faith helps us see with 2020 vision while sight makes things dark and blurry. I think we can all agree that we don't want people driving by faith. We want them driving by sight. And I will condone that. But I wish the church was the other way. It would look, how would the church look if, if the people lived by faith and not sight? See, in verse 16, Habakkuk is looking over the horizon from where the Babylonians will be coming, and he sees the hills, and he becomes afraid. So what happened from verse 16 to verse 17 that allows him to take joy? And the answer is that Habakkuk begins looking at life through the lenses of faith and not sight, because faith sees more clearly than sight. You could say that Habakkuk's prayer was actually just a foreshadow of Jesus' life. It wouldn't be surprising if Jesus himself had verses 17 to 19 close to his heart. It would go something like this. Though I have no home to lay my head, and though Judas betray me, and though my closest disciples deny me, and though the crowd I once fed and taught eventually cry out for my crucifixion, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. See, Jesus lived the perfect life. And if if you've been going to church for a long time, we hear that all the time. Yes and amen, he did. But he lived the perfect life of faith, not sight. See, because for Jesus to have lived a life of faith, it would mean this. Just as he will be starting out his ministry and looking for disciples to, um, for, so for some disciples to follow him, he would approach the water and he would see fishermen and he would see their muddy faces and he would see their rough hands. And then as he gets closer, he would start smelling the stench of fish and said, no, thank you. As he's walking down the village, he would have heard the cries of the criminals who were crucified just outside of the city. And he would have gotten just close enough to hear what they're saying. Maybe they're saying something cool and, and they cry out in pain. He would have said, no, thank you. Maybe he would have been walking down by the hills of Golgotha where he was later to be crucified. And then he happened to gl- take a glimpse of the nails and he realized, holy cow, these nails are way bigger than I thought. No, thank you. But instead, Jesus lives a perfect life of faith. And trust in God. And it is this faith that lets him see clearly that his identity, that his security, that his confidence, that justice, that his purpose are all in the Lord. See, Hebrews 12, chapter 12, puts it like this. That we are to also look to him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the point. That I'm trying to make. If Jesus was not resurrected on the third day, then he would have proven that it is better to live by sight than faith. If there is no resurrection, if there is no future glory or victory over sin and death, then Jesus would have proved that living by sight is far better than faith. But Hebrews 12 tells us that the good news of the gospel is that because Jesus is victorious, suffering and death, though more visible to us today, 
will be but a shadow of the reality that is coming. See, church, this is the great news of the gospel because if living by sight is all that we have, then you have great reason to panic. But by faith, we see clearly and can rejoice in the Lord. I don't know what's awaiting you in 2019. I don't know what's awaiting me in 2019. And I certainly don't know how rough your life has been thus far. But I hope we can take this lesson with us moving forward. See, when you're holding that letter of rejection from your top choice college, by sight, you have every reason to feel discouraged. But by faith, your worth is in the Lord. When you're passed over for that promotion at work for whatever reason, by sight, you have every reason to feel like you're not good enough. But by faith, your identity is secure in the Lord. When you're hoping to get reassigned to a major city and leave St. Mary's County, by your contract got extended, <laughs> by sight, you have nothing to be excited about, perhaps. But by faith, you're part of God's greatest redemption plan that he strategically placed you here. See, when you're still single after many years of trying to find a wife or a spouse, by sight, you have every reason to feel unwanted and alone. But by faith, you see more clearly that you have a spouse that loves you more than you could ever imagine and gives himself to you in sickness and in health and even death. When your health is not what it used to be, or maybe sickness has been a long friend of yours, or things have been getting worse and worse every day, then by sight, you have every reason to feel weak and useless. But by faith, we can see clearly that death is not the end. When you're wronged by the world for being a Christian for your faith, then by sight, you have every reason to be angry. But by faith, you can trust that the Lord will make things right and justice is coming. When your children reject you and they may limit the amount of interaction they want and involvement you may have in their life, by sight, you have every reason to feel like you failed as a parent. But by faith, you see more clearly that they have a heavenly father, a better father, who in his mercy works all things for their good and is able to open their hearts and he's working the same things for your good. When grief takes hold of you and your heart aches because our loved ones have been touched by death, by sight, you have every reason to be joyless. But by faith, you see more clearly the resurrection that is coming. By faith, we see clearly the coming of the day when there will be no more pain or tears, sin or sorrow or death. And everything will be but a distant shadow of a memory. We started the sermon with a question. How is it that Polycarp was able to refuse in denying the name of Jesus? And the answer is this. Polycarp, he saw the stadiums filled with people mocking him and ready to see blood spilled. He saw the guards sharpening their spears and ready to lay it on him. 
And he certainly saw the wood and the oil that burned his brothers and sisters before him and was ready for him as well. He saw the governor with his ready to unleash all hell loose on him by one single word. But he ultimately let his faith be his sight. That's faith that sees more clearly. What did he see? He saw the promise of Christ that on that very day, he will be with him in paradise. That a room was being prepared in his father's house for him. And that a seat of honor was being set for him to dine with the king that very day. That's what Polycarp saw. Church, may we see with the eyes of faith, with the lenses of faith and not sight, until the day when our faith will become sight and all the promises of God will make our sufferings on this earth but a distant memory throughout eternity. Church, may you look to the new years not with blind optimism nor naivety, but hope in the Lord. May your eyes rise above the hills where the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, brings strength and he is your salvation. Church, be strong in the God of your strength. Be strong in the God of your salvation. And whatever comes your way, may your heart learn to say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, before Habakkuk even uttered these beautiful words, yet I, it was really you who said, yet I first. When we were in our brokenness, you said, yet I will love these people. When we were unreachable, you were the one who said, yet I will reach them. And Father, even today, when our lives are not perfect and brokenness is all around us, still you say, yet I am with you. So Father, We pray that as a church, we may learn to see with the lenses of faith that our hearts will sing, yet I will rejoice in the Lord because you're with us. Father, let us be a people who walks by faith and not by sight, just like Jesus, our Lord and Master, showed us in his life here. We thank you that we have great hope. We thank you that we have a great mediator and a great savior. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.